Section 4 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 4. Edited by Francis Rault Wheeler. Chemistry, Chapter 4, The Later Alchemists. Until lately, the marked progress in chemical knowledge, which occurred toward the end of the 15th century and at the beginning of the 16th century, was always associated with the name of Bacillus Valentinus. But the authenticity of the writings ascribed to him has become more and more questioned, and they are evidently spurious in parts. He seems to have been born at Mayence about 1394, and to have been a monk of the Benedictine order, but although numerous works have been printed in his name, no further particulars concerning his life have descended to posterity. The important works which appear under his name are as follows. Curus Triumphalis Antimonii, De Microcosmo, De Que Magno Mundi Mysterio et Medicina Hominis, Tractatus Chemico, Philosophicus, De Rebus Naturalibus, et Praeter Naturalibus, Metallorum et mineralium. Practica, una cum duodecim, clavibus et appendici. De magno lapide antiquorum sapientum, and testamentum ultimum. It is impossible to extract from these works the knowledge gained and possessed by the original author, but as von Mayer states, there can hardly be any doubt that a large number of facts were recorded by the writer who lived about a hundred years before the books were published, this being especially the case in the triumphal car of antimony, in which we possess what for a time was a marvelous description of an element and its compounds. In this work the extraction of antimony from the sulfide found in nature is described and the properties of antimony are in part mentioned. Antimony was used in purifying gold, and its compounds were applied medicinally. It would appear that Basil Valentine was the first to prepare hydrochloric acid by heating together copperas and common salt, and that he was acquainted with the rectification of the distillate obtained from beer and wine by means of potassium carbonate, the use of precipitation as a method of experimenting, and the employment of the spirit lamp in certain operations. Judging from some passages in the works ascribed to him, Basil Valentine made the first attempts at qualitative analysis, for he proved that iron was present in certain hard tins, gold in Hungarian silver, silver in Mansfield copper, and copper in Hungarian iron. The language used in the works of Valentine is frequently obscured by mystical pictures and ideas, and, like others of his time, he often found it impossible to express his alchemistic thought in any language save that of far-fetched allegory. The 16th century, a period of reformation, adventure, and discovery, is characterized by the Paracelsus, who formed the transition from the alchemists of the Arabic school to the iatrochemists. The latter had other objects of research than the alchemists, but as some of the Paracelsists and medical mystics were hermetic philosophers. It is appropriate to refer to their alchemistic views here. Paracelsus, the Luther of medicine, the seer of Hohenheim, 
created a new school of alchemy. He considered that gold could be made by application of chemistry, but that the process is not to be compared with the method of producing gold by an exercise of the occult powers existing in the soul of man. On adopting this view, Paracelsus, with alchemistic tendencies, abandoned experimental investigation and sought within themselves the great secret of alchemy. Libavius, who criticized the mystical writings of Paracelsus, nevertheless fully believed in the transmutation of the metals, and even Van Helmont, the most distinguished of the iatrochemists, went so far as to testify that he himself had effected the transmutation of mercury into gold. In his work, De Vita Eterna, according to Waite, Van Helmont makes the following declaration. I have seen and I have touched the philosopher's stone more than once. The color of it was like saffron in powder, but heavy and shining like pounded glass. I had once given me the fourth part of a grain. I call a grain that which takes six hundred to make an ounce. I made projection therewith, wrapped in paper, upon eight ounces of quicksilver, heated in a crucible, and immediately all the quicksilver, having made a little noise, stopped and congealed into a yellow mass. Having melted it in a strong fire, I found within eleven grains of eight ounces of the most pure gold, so that a grain of this powder would have transmuted into a very good gold, 19,156 grains of quicksilver. He states further that he performed a similar operation in public many times, and consequently believed in the certainty of the art, although he did not possess the secret of making the transmuting agent. Other chemists of the 16th century, as Agricola and Senert, were not avowed alchemists, yet they did not oppose views respecting the transmutation of metals. The last important iatrochemist, Tecanius, alone contended against the ennobling of metals. His instructor in Leiden, Franz de la Beau, accepted the belief of his times in regard to transmutation. In the reign of James I of England, reports were circulated that an artist, Butler, had performed several transmutations in London by means of a red powder secured from an Arabian alchemist, and later he is said to have accomplished wonderful cures with a hermetic medicine. Van Helmont attests these miracles, some of which he had the opportunity of witnessing. After chemistry had assumed its proper position as a science in the phlogistic period, and its study was neither obscured by attempts at transmutation, nor limited to the preparation of medicines, many experimenters still remain convinced of the possibility of converting individual metals into another. Although alchemical work was kept secret to a great extent, and was looked down upon, yet expressions of belief were far from being uncommon, even among such chemists as Robert Boyle, Johann Kunkel, Hamburg, George Stahl, and Hermann Borjava. In his old age, however, Stahl advised and warned against the pursuit of alchemy, and Borjava, after considerable experimental work, showed the falsity of many of the views held by the alchemists. For example, the alchemists asserted that quicksilver could be fixed in a fireproof, metallic condition, without the addition of any other substance, but Borjava disproved this by keeping quicksilver at a somewhat raised temperature in an open vessel for 15 years, without noting any change, 
and when he heated the quicksilver at a higher temperature in a closed vessel for six months no change was observed ernst von meyer states in his history of chemistry that after his that is borhava's time no notable exponent of chemistry which had now attained to the rank of a science spoke in support of the alchemistic views but all the greater was the number of cheats and swindlers who cultivated the lucrative field of gold-making even during the eighteenth century the conviction of the impossibility of transmutation which was at that time establishing itself among scientific chemists made its way but slowly into outer circles credulity and the hope of obtaining riches for nothing were the means of leading many into very doubtful paths even so late as the end of the eighteenth century and the beginning of the nineteenth final echoes of the alchemistic problem which had for so long a period of time held the cultured of every nation in a state of tension and had even blinded eminent scientific men only appear to have died away during the last decades of the nineteenth century the statements of witnesses and conductors of alleged transmutations are often impressive and convincing and such testimony is the strongest of the supposed evidence in favor of gold making probably the most interesting of such records is that contained in the golden calf the world's idol of john frederick helvetius an eminent dutch physician written in sixteen sixty seven in his work helvetius narrates the fact that he received from the artist elias a piece of the philosopher's stone the latter had in his possession and that this piece no larger than a grain of rapeseed transmuted six drams of lead into the finest gold this gold was then taken to a silversmith who first mixed four parts of silver with one part of the gold then he filed it put aqua fortis to it dissolved the silver and let the gold precipitate to the bottom the solution being poured off and the calyx of gold washed with water then reduced and melted it appeared excellent gold and instead of a loss in weight we found the gold was increased and had transmuted a scruple of the silver into gold by its abounding tincture in the seventeenth century it appeared impossible to doubt such testimony and at that time it was not known that the articles made from alchemistic gold were but worthless alloys prepared for fraudulent purposes among the other hermetic philosophers and adepts of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries may be mentioned jean d'espanay author of a treatise on mystical alchemy alexander sethon who suffered from exposure of his power michael sendivogius who made gold by projection in the presence of emperor rudolph ii at prague and at varsovia and Württemberg, boussardier who left a powder when he died one grain of which was used by emperor ferdinand III for converting three pounds of mercury into gold irenaeus philolethes pierre fabre john overright lascarius who is recorded as having changed mercury into gold and gold into silver and delisle alchemistic efforts were especially encouraged during this period at the courts of a large number of german princes many of whom were amateur alchemists themselves and who expended large sums of money in fostering gold making the priests of trickery were however finally exposed as frauds and rogues and a dire punishment was meted out to them almost without exception it has been mentioned that the alchemistic ideas 
with the transmutation of metals as their leading tenet originated in egypt where they were first fostered by the initiates of the sacred art and that the conversion of the sacred art of egypt into alchemy resulted from contact with european thought and ecclesiastical mysticism the egyptian priests taught the unity of nature and asserted that a fundamental similarity existed between heavenly and terrestrial things but alchemy while its argument rested on a supposed familiarity with nature's methods and postulated an orderly and simple universe apply moral conceptions to material phenomena and pursued a policy rich in fantastic detail dictated by fanciful conceptions the original and central aim of alchemy was the production of a substance which was variously designated as the philosopher's stone the one thing the essence the great elixir the great magisterium the red tincture the stone of wisdom the heavenly balm the divine water the virgin water the phoenix the lion the old dragon the basilisk and the carbuncle of the sun this substance was supposed to have the power of transmuting base metals into gold but other powers were attributed to it also and the alchemists undoubtedly regarded it as the soul of all things after the eighth century the philosopher's stone was reputed to possess the power of curing all diseases and was styled the great panacea this belief in its powers came into existence gradually owing to the western alchemists attaching too literal an interpretation to some of the arabian descriptions of its powers for instance gerber termed the base metals invalids which he would cure or transmute by means of the philosopher's stone at a much later date about sixteen hundred it was claimed that the philosopher's stone could transform quartz into gems change a thousand pearls into one pearl of great beauty and render glass malleable it was also said to possess the power of imparting moral culture and redemption from sin the descriptions of the one thing differ widely and the alchemists could describe it only in contraries some spoke of it as a red powder others stated that it possessed a peach blow color and many affirmed that it was of a gray appearance paracelsus described it as a very stable red substance transparent as crystal pliable as gum and yet as fragile as glass when pulverized it was said to resemble saffron philalethes states in his brief guide to the celestial ruby the philosopher's stone is a certain heavenly spiritual penetrative and fixed substance which brings all metals to the perfection of gold or silver according to the quality of the medicine and that by natural methods which yet in their effects transcend nature know then that it is called a stone not because it is like a stone but only because by virtue of its fixed nature it resists the action of fire as successfully as any stone in species it is gold more pure than the purest it is fixed and incombustible like a stone but its appearance is that of a very fine powder impalpable to the touch sweet to the taste fragrant to the smell in potency a most penetrative spirit apparently dry and yet unctuous and easily capable of tinging a plate of metal the processes given for preparing the great magisterium are also numerous and varied 
the methods whereby the agent is itself perfected, and the processes wherein the agent effects the perfecting of the base and unperfect things, were divided into ten or twelve gates, or stages, by the alchemists. The prime requisite was the securing of the crude material to be employed. This was called the materia prima cruda, terra virginiae, etc., and although it was thought to occur in very large amounts, his identity was unknown, and the procuring of this substance was considered to be the really difficult part of the undertaking. From the materia prima cruda was to be obtained the materia prima matura, a substance also known as the mercurius philosophorum, or azoth, to which was then to be added aro philosophorum. This mixture was then digested at a low heat for some time without the presence of the air in the ovum philosophicum to procure the raven's head or the caput corvi, a black substance which, through long digestion, becomes transformed into the swan, a white body. The latter was then exposed to a higher temperature to produce the philosopher's stone. The various gates were known as calcination, dissolution, conjunction, putrefaction, congelation, citation, sublimation, fermentation, and exaltation. The Alexandrians believed that the metals were alloys of varying composition, and consequently, that the transformation of one metal into another was possible, either by means of the addition of other substances, or the expulsion of some present, and the western alchemists regarded all metals as compounds. For example, Arnaldus Villanovanus and Remundus Lullius assumed mercury and sulfur as their constituents, and the latter asserted that every substance is composed of these two substances. Under the term mercurius or mercury, the alchemists saw the cause of metallic glance and malleability, while the term sulfur was used to express the idea of transmutability and also combustibility and the various metals were regarded as compounds of these substances in different proportions. For instance, gold, the most perfect metal, which nature was thought to form slowly in the earth, was considered to be a compound of much mercury, with only a small amount of sulfur. Therefore, considering that all other metals differed from gold only in the proportions in which mercury and sulfur were present, the alchemists sought for an agent whereby these proportions could be changed and gold produced. Introspection preceding observation gave rise to the alchemistic views of the universe and natural phenomena, and to quote M. M. Pattison Muir, the change from alchemy to chemistry is an admirable example of the change from a theory formed by looking inward, and then projected onto external facts, to a theory formed by studying facts, and then thinking about them. Although many of the theories of the alchemists were ridiculous, and much unimportant material was accumulated by them, yet they untiringly pursued their quest, their views were connected with their practice, and as Muir observes, there was a constant action and reaction between their general scheme of things, and many branches of what we now call chemical manufactures. The result of this was that some progress, worthy of account, was made in the knowledge of applied chemistry during the alchemistic period. Metallurgy was not the least of these. Three new metals, antimony, bismuth, and zinc, were discovered in the second half of the age of alchemy, 
and the knowledge of the properties of the metals already known was increased but few alterations were made in the methods of extracting and purifying metals as might be expected the greatest importance was attached to the treatment of gold and silver ores and quite accurate balances came to be used as a result of the attention given to the yield of the noble metals for a long time gold was obtained in a pure condition just as it was in earlier times that is by the use of lead but later it was ascertained that it could be purified by fusion with stibnite antimony trisulfide and in the time of albertus magnus it was found that gold and silver could be separated by treatment with nitric acid prior to this time the cementation process of the ancients was employed for effecting the separation of the noble metals silver was extracted by fusion with lead a method in use in pliny's time mercury was obtained by roasting its ores in furnaces and by distilling sublimate mercuric chloride mixed with caustic lime it was used in extracting the noble metals in gilding and in alchemical research zinc and bismuth are mentioned in alchemical literature and it would appear that zinc was used in the early medieval times however these metals were not used technically cobalt ore is also sometimes mentioned in the fifteenth century copper was prepared by immersing plates of iron in solutions of bluestone copper sulfate but there are no important improvements to record in the methods of extracting and preparing iron lead and tin however the various degrees of hardness and softness of iron were known at an early period and the deportment of copper iron lead and tin when subjected to heat and to the action of acids was studied throughout the alchemistic period ceramics advanced to no little degree in ancient times glass had been colored by adding various oxides of metals to the fused mass but in this age it was learned that the colors could be burned in a decidedly important discovery it was also found that the use of glazes containing lead and tin for earthenware vessels was advantageous for certain purposes dyeing became better understood several important dyes were introduced during the alchemistic period orchilla which was known in ancient rome was brought from the east about the thirteenth century and conchineal was introduced by the arabians indigo also began to be used during this period alum was employed almost entirely as the mordant in dyeing inorganic compounds were more thoroughly studied nitric and sulfuric acids were obtained at an early date the former was first prepared by the distillation of a mixture of saltpetre bluestone and alum but later it was found that it could be produced from saltpetre and sulfuric acid and sulfuric acid was prepared by distilling a mixture of iron vitriol and pebbles and by burning sulphur after the addition of saltpetre under a hood fitted with a side tube for the overflow of the acid produced when sulphur is burned alone a gas now known as sulphur dioxide is produced and it is known that the water solution of this gas was often confounded with sulphuric acid gerber prepared sulphuric acid by heating alum but failed to study its properties other than finding that it was a powerful solvent at a much later date hydrochloric acid was produced by heating common salt and green vitriol this acid which was known as spiritus solis 
was mixed with nitric acid to prepare aqua regia, a strong solvent which the alchemists thought closely approximated the alkahest or universal solvent. The alchemists were acquainted with a large number of salts, of which it was thought that solubility in water was a general characteristic. Hence the term sol included a large number of substances and was widely distorted. The term alkali was first mentioned in the Latin writings ascribed to Gerber, but according to von Meyer, one seldom meets in the alchemistic age with a strict distinction between potash and soda, or between their carbonates, while on the other hand, preparations of carbonate of potash, obtained in different ways, were regarded as dissimilar products. The distinction drawn by Abu Mansur between nantrum, for example, the soda found in nature as a mineral deposit, and qualia, the alkali from the ashes of land plants, is, however, very noteworthy. These names were perpetuated in the German words natron and kali. The solvent power of the lyes obtained from the carbonates of potash and soda by the addition of lime was made use of by the alchemists. Among the salts known to the alchemists were alum, which was prepared from alum shale and widely used, iron and copper vitriols, saltpeter, salmiac, and carbonate of ammonia. Saltpeter, potassium nitrate, was probably used in early times in the manufacture of fireworks. It was known in various periods of this age as salpetrosum, salnitri, and nitrum. Salmiac, sal ammoniacum, chloride of ammonia, was originally prepared from dung, although some of the naturally occurring product of volcanic origin was used. Carbonate of ammonia was prepared by the chemists of the 13th century and was known to them as spiritus urinae. Later it was obtained from salmiac and alkali carbonate. Other inorganic compounds known to the alchemists were nitrate of silver, chloride of silver, mercuric oxide, mercuric chloride, basic mercuric sulfate, mercuric nitrate, zinc oxide, zinc sulfate, antimony trichloride, basic chloride of antimony, antimony trioxide, potassium antimoniate, arsenious acid, peroxide of iron, oxide of copper, and the lead oxides. As before mentioned, the alchemists knew that gold dissolved in aqua regia. This solution, aurum potabile, was thought to possess wonderful medicinal effects. They also knew that silver could be precipitated from a silver nitrate solution by the use of mercury or copper. The preparation of antimony from the sulfide by fusion with iron is described in several of the works ascribed to Basil Valentine. It is mentioned in these works that antimony does not possess the properties of a metal in full degree, and that it is a variety of lead. In the 15th century, antimony was used in certain alloys, and the compounds of it then known were used in medicine. Arsenic was prepared in the 13th century by the Western alchemists, who considered that it was a bastard metal. Arsenious acid was prepared as early as the 10th century by roasting realgar and was called white arsenic. At a much later period, about the close of the medieval age, it was observed that arsenious acid occurs in the fumes from pyrite's furnaces. Mention has been made of some sulfur compounds, the sulfides of mercury, cinnabar, 
and antimony, stibnite, among others, which were found to be valuable materials for the production of sulfur and other bodies. These were grouped together as forming a particular variety of compounds under the name of marcasite, Albertus Magnus, zinc blende, galena, lead sulfide, and iron and copper pyrites being included among them. The peculiarity which these substances had in common, that of giving off a product of such characteristic odor as sulfurous acid when roasted, may have formed the main reason for assigning them to one group. It should be remembered, however, that the production of several metallic sulfides from their components had been observed, for example, the formation of cinnabar from quicksilver and sulfur. And this may be supposed to have contributed materially to a knowledge of their composition. Rialgar and orpiment were known to the Arabian physicians. The alchemists were fond of using the names of animals as symbols of certain mineral substances and of representing operations in the laboratory by what may be called animal allegories. The yellow lion was the alchemical symbol of yellow sulfides, the red lion was synonymous with cinnabar, and the green lion meant salts of iron and of copper. Black sulfides were called eagles and sometimes crows. When black sulfide of mercury is strongly heated, a red sublimate is obtained, which has the same composition as the black compound. If the temperature is not kept very high, little of the red sulfide is produced. The alchemist directed to urge the fire, else the black crows will go back to the nest. Organic compounds were also examined and their properties recorded. Notwithstanding the fact that the alchemists originally paid more attention to the properties of mineral bodies rather than to those of organic bodies, yet the study of the action of heat upon bodies when air is excluded and improvements in methods of distillation led to the investigation in a crude manner of the products of distillation and eventually to the discovery of definite organic compounds. Among the few organic preparations known to the alchemists, spirit of wine takes a prominent place. This compound was formally designated by very different names. For instance, Marcus Gracchus, 8th century, calls it aqua ardens. The Latin translators of Gerber's works refer to it as aqua vitae, and others mention it as aqua vitis, mercurius vegetabilis, spiritus vivus, and consolatio ultima corporis humani. The term spiritus vini first occurs in the writings ascribed to Basil Valentine, and the name alcohol was first used by Libavius at the end of the 16th century. The symbols used to denote the metals have been referred to, among other signs employed, instead of writing the names of substances, were the following. Sulfur, triangle with an upside-down cross on the bottom. Vitriol, a circle with a cross in it. Fire, triangle. Air, with an A. Water, with an upside-down triangle. Water, with two wavy lines. Earth, with an upside-down triangle with a line on the bottom. Aqua fortis, upside down triangle with two lines on the sides. Aqua regia, a V with a curved line on the side. Aqua vitae, a V with three circles on the points. Day, a circle with an angled line on the top. 
night a circle with an angled line on the bottom amalgam an upside down v with three lines crossing it alembic an upside down v and a right side up v the alexandrians employed two vessels in conducting a distillation one for evaporating the liquid and the other for condensing the vapor and this improvement resulted in the simplification of the method of manufacturing spirit of wine and an extension of its importance in medicine and alchemy the preparation of concentrated spirit of wine by repeated distillation and by rectification over dry carbonate of potash was described by raymundus lullius who also examined the action of sulfuric acid upon spirit of wine spirits were generally dehydrated by rectifying at a low temperature however in order to condense the vapors completely they were passed through long condensing tubes often of an extraordinary form at the close of the middle ages the alchemists were acquainted with several ethers which they prepared in an impure state by the action of acids on spirit of wine one of the alchemical writers speaks of a spirit prepared in this way which has a subtle penetrating pleasant taste and an agreeable smell this probably referred to ethyl oxide or ethyl ether a compound prepared by various chemists in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries it has been mentioned that the only acid with which the ancients were acquainted was vinegar that is an impure wine vinegar the alchemists however learned to concentrate vinegar and it is to them that is owed the first production of acetic acid by distillation the alchemical views concerning the formation of acetic acid from alcohol are vague and it was frequently confounded with the acids observed in plant juices the belief in the transmutability of metals was dismissed from chemistry when lavoisier established the important generalization of the new chemistry namely that matter may be changed but neither destroyed nor created seventeen seventy nevertheless many have applied themselves to attempts at converting the bountiful metals into the agreed standard of exchange but these experimenters have been for the most part men of limited chemical knowledge and experience and to quote charles baskerville a careful analysis of the motives actuating and methods pursued presents merely an inferior picture of the perfected practices we are gradually learning of as obtaining in that circle termed high finance the alchemical literature of the nineteenth century is quite extensive but is in general cabalistic and teeming with credulity misconception and misinformation at the present time there is a strong inclination among chemists toward a belief in the mutual convertibility of chemically similar elements this view is based on the supposition that all the chemical elements are combinations of different quantities of one primal element and on the peculiar conduct of certain recently discovered elements in fact the belief in the transmutation of atoms is in close agreement with the present theories of atomic disintegration but this is based on new discoveries and on correctly interpreted chemical problems and not upon false deduction and experiment it is therefore not to be confused with the earlier views for even if the hypothetical primal element should be isolated one aim of alchemy would be fulfilled but the fulfillment would not be that whereof the alchemistical philosophers taught and dreamed.
End of section four.